We're looking at this section toward the end of the chapter, verses 28 through 34. Should be printed on the screen behind me, I think. And for those of you that have been uh, waiting, a couple of you have asked me, and so uh, you might remember earlier this year we took nominations for uh, potential officer candidates, potential elders, and wanted to give you a little update because we were supposed to, when we started the process, uh, get to the point in June where we would vote on these men. And just wanted to give you a brief update. Nothing is wrong. Nothing has happened. We're just halfway through the training. So we have a ways to go. So I will, as we get closer to the end and as we get closer to the end of training, uh, I'll give you more details about what will happen next and dates, and we'll lay all that out for you. So don't be afraid. We're not trying to sneak anybody in. You are going to have your vote. You will be heard, and you will know about these men. So I just wanted you to know everything is going fine. It's going great. Really enjoying being with these guys. So that said, let's look together at Mark chapter 12, and let's all remember again and again and again. As long as we're still reading the Word of God, as long as we still have the Scriptures, God has not given up on us. We get to hear it over and over again. We get to be reminded. He knows our lives. He knows you. He knows me. He knows where we are. He knows what we're doing. He hasn't given up on us. Let's hear this together. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, referring to Jesus, he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and with all, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions pretty interesting encounter, isn't it? Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand this. Oh, Lord, our God, as we prayed before, please don't leave us to our own devices. Lord, cause us to bring you into every moment and every situation of our lives. Help us, Lord, to not just learn and not only to believe, but help us to delight in you. We ask these things from you, Lord, because there's nowhere else we can go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Help us to realize that and all these things that we've requested afresh. Help us to see your Son as our Savior this morning. We pray in his name and for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.
You might remember this section of Mark that we're in, chapters 11 through 16, is really showing us the last week of the life of Jesus. It's showing us everything that happened, not every single detail, but everything that we need to know. And in a very real sense, when we looked at chapter 11 last week and Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that was the point of no return. There was no going back. Once Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was going for a very specific and particular purpose. He was entering into Jerusalem to die. There was no going back. More than likely, we are about Tuesday of the week of Jesus' death as we look at this chapter and look at this section in chapter 12. We're about Tuesday. And chapter 12 is very interesting. What happens on Tuesday is very interesting to us. If you go back through some time and read through chapter 12, what you'll find is that there are lots of verbal exchanges that are going back and forth with Jesus and others. They're talking about things. They're talking about questions. They're trying to get answers from Christ. You'll notice that if you look in verses 17 through 27, you'll find that there's discussions about theology. What's going to happen after we die? You'll notice after the section that we're focusing on this morning in 35 and following, you'll find that there's a discussion that goes on about clarification. What does the scripture mean when it says this? You'll notice that earlier in the chapter there are questions about politics and what Jesus thinks about that. But this morning we're focusing on this one section in 28 through 34, and it's almost like, well, I guess it is. We get to eavesdrop on Jesus functioning in a small group. We get to see Jesus with a few people gathered around him. And, and they're asking him questions and he's answering. There's, there's give and take. And by the way, these are lively small groups. Are some of your small groups lively? You know what it's like to be in a small group? It doesn't just have to be associated with the church, but it can be at your work in which you are serving together, trying to figure out something together. And there's back and forth. Those that are over you or own the company are talking about matters and they want your input and they, they respond and there's interaction. Well, that's what's going on here. It's not out of control, but it's really lively. And we see that a scribe finally comes forward and asks Jesus a question. Now, you realize that a scribe is someone whose job is primarily to copy the Scriptures. Another aspect of a scribe's job and calling is that he is at times asked for clarification, uh, advice, uh, interpretation, wisdom of how to settle disputes. So this scribe comes forward and you can tell that he's a little bit nervous. Listen to this. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, you see, the scribe was someone who was there, but it was really shy. Maybe that's you. Maybe at times you're shy about hearing from Jesus, asking Jesus a question, or listening to Jesus. This scribe was sitting there waiting, watching how Jesus was answering. You see, there were some assumptions that had to be overcome in order for the scribe to have enough confidence to come forward and ask the question. That might be exactly where you are. 
You might be processing the, the claims of Christianity. You might be wondering, well, what's going on? I just need to sit here and think and watch and process and, and listen to how Jesus says, answers this and, and listen to how he interacts with people and before, before I'll really, really show and really open up and ask what's on my mind. Well, if that's you, or that has been you, or that is you, or that you think that might be you, you can relate to this scribe pretty well. More than likely, if you're not nervous about coming into the presence of Jesus at all, something's wrong. If you're not nervous about asking Jesus a question, a burning question on your heart, something might be wrong. I mean, this, this is the guy that is God in the flesh, right? His answers are correct. And even if you know a little bit about the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that he sees all of you, like through you, you know? He knows your thoughts, he knows your motives, he knows everything, and you better believe that's intimidating. Well, this scribe finally is able to get some of these assumptions. He's trying to get over, he finally gets over some of those assumptions, and he comes to Jesus and he asks this question. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Now, we love these kind of questions because he is getting right to the point. You know, we live in a day and age in which sound bites are everywhere, you know? We want a 300-page book summarized in eight words. You want to have most of your conversations via 160 characters. I'm texting and if you have to send three or four messages, that's okay. If it goes beyond that, psh, you're done. Don't want anything to do with that, right? We want to get right to the point. We want someone to nail it and articulate themselves perfectly. This man comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? Now, what's important is that we think about for a moment once under this question. You see, the scribe's job, like I mentioned, is to copy the Word of God. He knows all about the Word of God. As a matter of fact, the scribes have told us, and you can find this through scholars and whatnot, that God has over 600 commands in the Word. 600 commands. When the scribe asks this question to Jesus, he's not testing Jesus' intellectual ability to succinctly answer something. He's not testing Christ's ability to do that. He wants to know, Jesus, there are a lot of laws out there. Which one is the most important? Because what's implied here is, I want to measure my life against what is most important. Because who in their right mind could think that they could keep all 613 commands? Who could do that? So let's just get at the most important one, and let's see how I measure up. Isn't this how we live? You have responsibilities at work. You have responsibilities at home. And they're called priorities, right? And we try, we struggle all of our lives long to figure out what should be a priority, what is my priority, what, what actually, what functionally are my priorities, and then how do they, you know, kind of line up, right? We've got so many things that demand our attention. And we're constantly thinking, well, what's most important, and then how am I doing against those, right? But we're always adjusting and always changing, 
always readjusting. So this man asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus, give it to us. Succinctly summarize this for us. Well, Jesus then in verse 34 answers this question. And, and actually, he doesn't answer it in verse 34. But verse 34 gives us a clue about how well he answered the question. Verse 34 gives you that interpretive clue that says, this is how well Jesus nailed this question. This is how well he can answer this scribe. He answered it so well that no one dared ask him any more questions. He nailed it. Now, you might not think as we read through 20, 28 through 34 that Jesus did that great of a job. So let's dive in a little deeper and understand what Jesus said. Jesus, in essence, answered the scribe's question by saying, love, didn't he? Love God and love your neighbor. What's the greatest commandment? What's most important, Jesus? Out of all these laws, what is most important? Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. And oh, by the way, this is a far-reaching, profound, deep down love. It's to love with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. That's pretty deep, isn't it? And not only that, but it's to love your neighbor. It's not just a feeling. This is deep down love. Now just for a minute, Let's go off on this rabbit trail together. Because I don't want us to forget, those of you that have been in church for a long time, I don't want you to forget why we should love our neighbor and why we should love God. Because sometimes it can just get so, you know, easy and not really deep. And it should be really deep and it shouldn't always just be easy. We should love our neighbor because the gospel does not let us remain self-centered. Remember? We have to love our neighbor. Because if the significance of Jesus' death and the significance of his resurrection is at work in our lives, we can't be self-centered anymore. We can't. And because of our sin, we are so calculated we are so tactical about how we actually want to serve others for ourselves, right? But when the truth of the gospel begins to take root in our lives, we don't want to be self-promoters anymore. And we war with the idea and we war with our desire to promote ourselves. And the gospel changes that. To the point where we want to be unconditional mercy givers. The gospel changes us into where we want to be extravagant risk takers. We're not just living for ourselves anymore. God has purchased us and put us together so that we might love each other and love our neighbor to love anyone that God puts in our path. 
so we can't serve ourselves anymore. And we ought to, by God's grace, continue to fight against that. But what about why should we love God? We've got to go through these quick. These are just three things to think about. And I'm going to do them largely by means of quotes. Now, you can expand on this, and I hope that you will. But, beloved, as we gather today, shouldn't we love God because of his power? Isn't that important? You remember this great statement? I'm sure you've heard it before. I'm sure I've even said it before, but I can't get over it. It keeps coming back to my mind. Remember this? I believe in the God. I believe in God in the same way that I believe in the Son. Not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. God created the Son, and it's not enough just to say, wow, that's great. It's not just good enough to acknowledge it's there. It's that because it's there, it's giving you a shadow of who God is and the fact that God is the way by which we see everything clearly. What about the Bible? Shouldn't you love God because of the Word, because of His Word? You realize that the essence of the Scripture is that God has given us the Bible because He's communicating to us how we can be friends. Not the friendship that a man has with his dog, but the friendship that a husband has to his wife. The friendship of a parent to a child. A loving, infinitely glorious and gracious parent to a child. That's the purpose of the Bible. To tell us what God has done so that we can be friends. Deep, deep friends. And what about loving God because of the gospel itself? It is amazing to me to think that God has purposed before I was born and before time began that he was going to bring eternal, everlasting joy and blessedness into Dave's life. That he is determined to bring his love and his forgiveness and his power into me. And that his love is greater than my foolishness. It's greater than my fears. His love is more powerful than any sin that I can muster up. And he hasn't let me forget that. And he continues to reveal that to me over and over and over again. Why would he love me? I don't know. But he has, and that's what I've got. What about the fact that I'm so foolish? It's true. But God's love is greater than that. And he changes me. The love of God is not just where God gets to see what he can get out of Dave. God's love to me and God's love to you in Christ is where he displays his power and his glory. And it's where he pours his grace into our lives and we are radically changed so that therefore we can't be self-centered anymore. Because if the gospel takes root, it flips you. It completely turns you around. So where you're not living for yourself anymore, you're living for 
God because of his power as told in his word because he loves us and what Christ has done. Well, that's just a little rabbit trail that we need to think about why we need to love God. Now, there are actually two truths here that Jesus is trying to communicate to us in his answer. Jesus says you need to love God. Jesus says you need to love your neighbor. You see, there are two things here that Jesus is trying to drive into us. And the first one is this, that the law and the love of God are not opposites. The law of God and the love of God actually fit together. Jesus is trying to get that into us. He's, this is how he's answering the question. Law and love fit together. They're not opposite. You see, the scribe says, what's the greatest commandment? The law. And Jesus says, love. There's another part in the scripture in Romans chapter 13 where Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, law and love are not opposites. They fit. The law of God always reveals what you are. The law of God always reveals what you love. It reveals how you're loved. And the law of God always exposes our hearts. And the law of God always guides our hearts. It always does. The second thing that Jesus is trying to communicate here and this is not original to me, I took this from someone else, is that the law is not about getting. The law of God is about giving. The law of God is not about getting, it's about giving. Here's what I mean. We always want to use the law of God to get things. You know that? You think about that? We use the law of God to get things. It works like this. If I obey God, then I can earn my right or earn the right to heaven. And when we have this mentality, what happens is oftentimes the reason why we obey is motivated by fear. I mean, we want to go to heaven. We want to do the right thing. So we obey because we're actually afraid because in our minds we're thinking, I need to obey to get something. Other times it works like this. We want to obey because we want to be a good person. God has his commands, he's laid out what we're supposed to do, and therefore I need to obey them because that will make me a good person. And what that means, if you're willing to examine and think deep down, what that means is that we not only are motivated by fear, but oftentimes we're motivated by pride. Because if we use the law of God to get goodness, if we use the law of God to get something, to be a good person, what that means is if I obey, I'll be a better person. And that means that I can be better than other people. That means that my goodness is actually found in my obeying. And so we live our lives that way. You see, it's how we try to get love from people. It's how we try to get love from God. By keeping the law. Now let's go even deeper. Oftentimes we think the law is how we get love, right? 
Now let's think about the seventh commandment for a moment. Do not commit adultery. All right? Let's think about this for a moment. The essence of this commandment is not to refrain from sex outside of marriage. Just test case. Those of you that are married, ask your spouse, hey, I haven't had sex outside of our marriage. Don't you know that I love you completely? If that's the only thing that measures love, if that's the sum total, I don't think your spouse would be very happy about that. You see, God wants us to comprehensively love. He wants us to love our spouse with all that we are. It's not just that we refrain from doing something. It's not just that we can constantly say, look, I've never done this, therefore I love you. No. That God wants us to love that person with all that we are. Everything. But oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, if I just follow this, then I've communicated love. Or, if you think about murder, the essence of murder is not just to refrain from stopping someone from breathing. The reason why God's given us that commandment is because he's showing us, look, you need to care for this person and promote life. It means that you ought to support justice. It means that you ought to encourage people. It means that you ought to pour into others and receive other people pouring into you. We read in other parts of the scripture, really, don't we? That if you are harboring hatred in your heart towards someone, that you're actually committing murder. The essence of that commandment is not just refraining from snuffing somebody out. that we are comprehensively promoting life and encouraging people, defending people, not trying to promote ourselves. So Jesus gives this answer, and this is when the conversation goes to a whole new level, isn't it? Jesus answers the question, and the scribe says to him, in essence, well said, teacher, well said, good job. And then he rehashes everything that Jesus has just said, as if to summarize it again. The scribe says, Jesus, you gave a great answer. And Jesus says, thank you. Thank you very much, scribe. I'm glad, that we've, I'm glad you asked this question, and I'm thrilled that you've joined our small group. Jesus says to the scribe, get, think about this. You are not far from the kingdom. The scribe asks a question, Jesus answers. The scribe says, you did great, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. And just to be sure, when Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom, what he's saying is, you are not in the kingdom yet, isn't he? You know what it's like to be not far or just miss, you know? When our little girls were growing up, Dabney in particular she would try to say the word computer. And you know what she would say? Computer. Really close. Not quite there, right? Now she says it just fine now. The point is, Jesus is saying, look, you are not far from the kingdom, but you are not in the kingdom yet. 
And we don't know what happens to this guy. The, the, the scripture doesn't tell us, does it? Maybe that's because God wants us to really, really, really think about where we are with him. Maybe the scripture wants us to really ponder about, am I just close? Even if I've been going to worship for years and decades, am I just showing up to attend? Am I really in the kingdom? Am I part of the kingdom or am I just close? Well, how do I connect law and love? How do I enter the kingdom? How do I know that I'm in the kingdom? How do I know that my life is not about giving and getting? How can I discern that, that my life is really more about using God or using things to get stuff rather than giving? Well, you see, what happens here is that we need to understand Jesus' quote. He answers a scribe in verse 29, but he's quoting from probably the most well-known passage in the Jewish world. Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. You see, people would know exactly what he was saying. They did know what Jesus was saying. If you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 6, what you'll find is that the commandments that are laid out there to love the Lord your God on and on and on, that is not an entrance exam. That is not God telling his people, look, here's what you have to do in order to enter, in order to be in a relationship with me. It's not a way for us to get a relationship with God. What God says there in Deuteronomy 6 is the result of what God has done for his people. He has saved them. He has poured out his grace on them. And he says, therefore, this is how we are going to work and live together. That passage was not about using it to get things from God. It's knowing and reinforcing that God already loves you. That he's already done everything that you need. So stop trying to use his law in order to get things from him. But to realize all that he has done so that you might live with him in relationship. And the other thing that sticks out here, the other way that we're going to understand that we're in the kingdom and not just close, that our lives really are about giving, not getting, is that we have to see that Jesus is more than just a teacher. What do the scribes say? Well said, teacher. We have to recognize that Jesus is much more than a teacher. Jesus is actually a savior. Jesus is actually a savior. You see, Jesus saved us not by what he said, but what he did. He saved us by what he has done. Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice. What that means is that Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his mind, 
and with all of his heart and with all of his strength and with all of his soul. And it means that he loved his neighbor at the greatest possible expense to himself. He died for you. Beloved, that's what brings us right to the table, doesn't it? Remember the night on which Jesus was betrayed. He had gathered with his disciples, and he desired to eat with them. He desired to establish something that they would remember, understand, something that would nourish their souls, something that they are to do until he returns. On the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this body, this bread represents my body, which was broken for you. Take and eat and remember that my life was for you. Then after that, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, and this cup represents my blood. Blood that was shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the satisfaction of a holy God and all of his perfect requirements. My blood was shed so that you don't have to try to earn your way. My blood was shed because I have earned the way for you. What that means as we come to the table for us today is that all of us need to examine ourselves. Because the scripture tells us very plainly that when we eat and when we drink, we're actually doing something. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This table is for his disciples. It's for his followers. And that means we need to think about, are you far from the kingdom? Are you really far from the kingdom? Or are you really close or are you in the kingdom? And how do you know that is when you think about, do I believe Jesus is, is just a teacher? Or have I received him as my Savior? Have I received him as my Lord? Have I received him as my everything? And are you warring against living for yourself or using God to get what you want? Or are you living for yourself and developing all kinds of plans and just wanting God to rubber stamp what you're doing? This table is the reminder that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if at this point you don't have him as your Savior and Lord, and if you haven't made that public, and you haven't been part of his body, the church, don't come to the table. This table isn't for you. But the Christ of this table is. And you need to think about your relationship with the Lord Jesus. And wonder if your life, how's it going? How's it going trying to live your life without Christ? Because Jesus has, says, has said he would be everything for you. So the offer is there. It's free. It's free. 
And those of you that, are, that do believe and are coming, you need to come. Not because you're perfect. Not because you figured everything out. Not because you have no struggles. But because you need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of who Christ is and what he has done. Who he is for me today. It's by his grace that I was brought into the kingdom. If the elders will come forward, we're going to pray, and then we'll distribute the elements. And if you would, please hold the elements, and we'll take them together at the end. Let me pray for us.